Thanks for listening to the New Stanton Church podcast. Check out our website at newstantonchurch.com where you can find out how to join our live stream at 901 on Sunday mornings. Now let's prepare our hearts for the word that we're about to receive. So um, we're going to do part two of Jonah today. Last week we started uh, in the series and I talked about how many people in the church today just seem to have fallen asleep, that we're, we're not doing what we've been called to do. And we have that same tendency that Jonah had to, to run away from God. And I told you that I don't think that we can be in, in living in disobedience uh, to God and remain at peace with him, or at peace with ourselves for that matter, amen? And because disobedience, remember, is always a journey away from God and never a journey towards him. So I want to pick up where we left off in verse 7 uh, this week, and we're going to see how Jonah actually comes face to face with his sin. So I'm going to read uh, from Jonah 1, starting in verse 7. Then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. When they did this, the lot identified Joseph, uh, Jonah as the culprit. Why is this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? Uh, what is your nationality? Jonah answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the land and the sea. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them that he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it, they groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to you to stop this storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this storm, this terrible storm, is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to the land, but the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. O Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin, and don't hold us responsible for his death. O Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons." Then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea, and a storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Father, thank you for this opportunity to share this morning, and thank you, Lord, uh, for your word. Thank you, Father, that you teach us through your word, and I ask this morning that you would open our hearts, and Lord, open our heads that we could hear it, and Lord, Put that message into our hands and into our feet so it wouldn't just be heart words or head words, Lord, but it would be works of our hands, that we would go and do what you have called us to do. May my words be true and may they be of you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this passage of Scripture actually brings Jonah to a crucial point in his flight from the presence of God. The sailors have done everything that they know how to do to save the ship and their own lives, even going so far as to throw the cargo overboard, which is pretty extreme when you, when you think about it. That's a pretty extreme measure to take, and it tells me that these seasoned men of the sea know that they are in real danger. And like most people will do, even non-believers, when they come face-to-face with extreme danger, they cry out to their God. But their gods aren't answering them. 
Remember that in Jonah's time, every tribe, every people group, uh, every nation had their own God, sometimes dozens of them, a God for just about everything. And the trick was to figure out which one of the many gods had been offended so that you could then figure out what you needed to do to that, for that God to get that God to hear your pleas or your, or your uh, plea for, or call for help. If you remember from verse 6 from last week, uh, the captain of the ship woke, woke Jonah up and he said, pray to your God so perhaps your God will hear us and will take pity on us. So with no relief in sight, they decide that whoever has made whichever one of these many gods angry is not stepping forward and confessing, and the only way to know who it is is to cast lots. And a lot falls to Jonah. So these men immediately pounce on him, right? Um, they, they start asking Jonah for a, a confession. They want to know who's responsible for making this trouble for them. In other words, what God have you offended? That's what they want to know. What God have you offended? And the four questions they ask him in verse 8 are simply to get an answer to that first question. Because if they know where he's from, if they know what tribe and nation he's of, they, they'll know what God he worships. And once they know what God he worships, then they will have an idea of what they need to do to make that God happy. That's what that's all about. But when Jonah tells them that he's a Hebrew and that he fears the Lord God of heaven who made the land and the sea, they panic. In fact, verse 10 says, this terrified them. Some translations say they became extremely frightened. So if they weren't frightened enough already, so frightened that they're throwing the stuff into the sea to save themselves, now they're really scared. Why did you do it, they cried. Can you hear the terror in their voice? Can you hear the, the fear? Why did you do it? Because they know they're, they're doomed. That's got to be the feeling. Jonah had already told them he was running away from his God, but now they know that the God that he's running away from is the Hebrew God, and they've become even more afraid. The God of the Hebrews was actually well-known throughout the entire area, the entire region, especially on that eastern side of the uh, Mediterranean Sea. That God had been around for a long time, and all, a lot of the people knew how mighty and powerful this God was. They didn't believe in him. He wasn't the God they worshipped, but they knew he existed, or they at least believed that he was one more God. But this is a powerful God. And they suddenly realize that they're not dealing with a petty God or trifling with some uh, idol of their own making, that they were dealing with the God of heaven. And this man, who's a prophet of this all-powerful God, is angry. God is angry with this man. And now they're afraid. And if... This God is this unhappy with this prophet? What chance do these guys have, right? And it's in that moment that I think Jonah comes face to face with his fear, or with his sin, sorry. He, he recognizes it. The blinders come off. He's suddenly convicted because he knows that these guys are in this situation and are about to die a horrible death because of his sin. 
Throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. You see, sin never happens in a vacuum, does it? Sin never happens in, isolo- in isolation. You, we all think it does. Like my friend used to say that, you know, the devil's over here saying, oh, go ahead, it's okay, no one will know, no one will know. And as soon as you do it, the devil's like, <laughs> he did it, he did it, he did it, he did it, with big flashing lights. Sin never happens in a vacuum. In fact, it would be more accurate to say that sin works like a vacuum in that it seems to always suck other people into it, doesn't it? It just drags other people down, right down with it. I grew up in the live and let live generation, right? Uh, do your own thing and I'll do my thing and we'll all just be fine. Today, people are more apt to say like, you do you, which is the exact same thing as live and let live. You do you, it's just a variation of that same narcissistic mantra that we had back when I was a child. What I do is none of your business, I'm not hurting anybody. But that simply is not true. And it is perhaps one of the biggest lies ever thrust upon the American people. And even the church has bought into it. Let me give you a a simple example of what I'm talking about. And it took me a long time to come up with this one. Thank you, Pastor Josh, for your wisdom. Social media. Now, there is nothing inherently wrong with social media. It can be lots of fun. Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Like many of you, I post pictures of my daughters and their grandkids and horses and, you know, all those, a few political things now and then if you see my Facebook page. But like almost everything else in our society, we have found a way to use these things for sin. And they become sinful. And while I generally enjoy social media as much as the next person, these platforms can be extremely destructive. There are two sins that come to my mind with social media, and now there are probably more, but two very quickly that perhaps we don't even think about when we're doing them, right? And the two come are flattery and envy. The biblical word for flattery is vainglory. And vainglory is like this inordinate pride of oneself, of one's achievements, like excessive vanity is the definition of flattery or vainglory. Most of us, picture, uh, most of us post pictures about our lives hoping that the world will like it. The, new, uh, the, the news will actually report. On, on the TV news, they'll actually report how some picture of a celebrity went viral. Which means that there's got a lot of likes. There's actually a definition for viral. Did you know that? I didn't know that. But there's a definition. It says that um, a post is considered having gone viral only if it gets more than 5 million views in a 3 to 7 day period of time. Who cares if it's not you, right? Who cares uh, if it isn't the real person? What you want, what, what you need is the approval. So even if it takes you 30 minutes to find that perfect selfie, it's worth it. Vainglory is a sin that we all too often overlook in our culture today. In fact, we actually celebrate it in our culture. But what happens if we don't get the approval that we so desire? 
What if no one likes your picture? What if no one comments on your pithy post or your favorite meme? Anger, frustration, anxiety, depression, feeling uh, isolated, lashing out, unfriending people. Have you ever done that? Gone through your phone and started unfriending everybody? And in some extreme cases, physical violence, even self-harm, are the result of not getting the approval you want. But there's a flip side to that as well, and that's the envy. How does, it, how does your flattery, your, your need for vainglory affect other people? And what does that have to do with sucking other people in, right? Researchers have found that our need for flattery through social media often triggers envy in other people. A study that was done by two German universities found that Facebook is a major contributor to envy, which causes several emotional problems. The researchers say that Facebook, in their words, breeds hostility. And over the long term, it can damage one's sense of self-worth, result in group dissatisfaction and withdrawal. How many of you have, I'm leaving Facebook for a little while. Been there, done that. It can lead to depressive tendencies, reduced perception of well-being, poor mental health, and in extreme cases, self-harm, even suicide. In short, our need for flattery, as it turns out, triggers envy and anxiety in an amazing number of people. And researchers found that some of the major Facebook triggers are travel and leisure. Yes, 56% of the people griped about your aggravating vacation pictures because they wanted to be there too. Envy, jealousy, 56% of the people. In second place, and much further down the list, was social interaction. You got invited and I didn't. Third on the list was appearance. Yep, 7% of people are jealous of how good you look on Instagram. And following that up, fourth on the list was success, and it was success of many different kinds that made up about 12% in total. People that are jealous of your success, the new job that you're excited about, the new relationship, the new car. Who would have thought that all those things that make you look successful would stress other people out? They're happy that you're getting ahead, but they're jealous that they don't have the same thing that you have. Does that kind of make sense? And finally, a growing number of people are using social media to intentionally cause harm to other people. The boy or the guy who posts pictures of his ex-girlfriend. Or he posts pictures of himself with his new girlfriend to cause jealousy. Someone posting negative things about someone else or sharing those unflattering pictures and content. Listen, people are fickle. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. They're there for you one day and against you the next. They love you when you agree with them. They dislike you when you disagree with them. And all of that need for flattery, which fuels envy, causes people to react in unusual and sinful ways. And the church oftentimes just overlooks it. As an aside to all of that, listen. If your identity is tied to man's praise, or to as we, as we used to call it, keep, keeping up with the Joneses, you will be eternally discontent. 
You will never be happy if what you need is approval from people on Facebook. Now, that's just one small example of something that seems innocent that can actually be sinful and even worse. It causes other people to sin as well. A friend of mine would often say, sin loves company. So when you are posting that picture on Facebook, think about what is your desired response. What are you expecting out of that? Are you posting it because you want something in return? Do you want praise, adoration, approval, acceptance? Are you bragging? Or are you trying to cause jealousy or envy or get a reaction from someone else? My point is simple as this. Sin is not benign. It's invasive and it is infectious. And it reaches out and drags other people into its grip and it tries to destroy everything and everyone it comes in contact with. So with that in mind, I want to talk about sin for, a few, for the next few minutes and what we can do about it, hopefully. So as you most likely know, there are two kinds of sin, right? There are, there are two sides of the same coin. There are sins of commission, those are the things that we do, and there are sins of omission. And those are the things that we know we should do and don't. Not doing the things that we know we ought to do. Jonah's sin was sin of omission. He intentionally did not do what God had told him to do. James said, therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it's sin. A friend of mine used to say, you can't just not do the don'ts. You have to do the do's. In fact, I would suggest to you that it's really important that you do the do's. Because remember, Jesus said, if you don't believe my words, believe my works by what I see, what I do. So what do we do when we find ourselves in, in sin? Let me give you three steps that I think can help. And the first one is name it. The first thing that I think we need to do is to understand that ultimately sin is disobedience that's born in a heart of pride. So look, we, we have to be honest with ourselves and we have to call sin out for what it really is. No excuses, no justification, no sugarcoating it, no fooling ourselves. Just call it exactly what it is. That's what Jonah did. There are often two different kinds of, uh, of or ways, if you will, of, of confessing our sins, right? Huh. For those of you who are parents... You can tell the difference when you see it. Theologians use word, the two words attrition and contrition to describe the two attitudes of the heart. How many of you have caught one of your kids doing something and realized that they weren't really sorry for what they did? They were just sorry because they got caught. That's called attrition. And they didn't feel remorse for what they did. And if given the opportunity, they'll do it again if they think they can't get caught. That's attrition. But if you've ever experienced your child being truly remorseful, broken up, caught, uh, and sorry, not because they got caught, but because the pain and the disappointment and the hurt that it caused. When your child is truly sorry for their actions, that's contrition. And that's the kind of confession that leads to true repentance. If you look at verse 10, it tells us that 
Uh, Jonah at some point had already told his shipmates that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And I believe when he told them that, that it was attrition. He was sort of saying, oh gosh, I messed up. But that's what we do when we don't want to be called out for our sin, right? We make this sort of confession. I mess up. But there's no real true remorse. There's no sorrow. There's no shame. And there's no repentance either. That's our way of getting people to overlook our sins. We admit it, but we don't take responsibility for it. But in verse 12, Jonah has his come-to-Jesus moment, so to speak, doesn't he? This is his, his confession. Jonah is owning up to what he's done. And not just because he got caught. Jonah says, throw me into the sea. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. That's contrition. That deep sorrow that accompanies the knowledge that we've sinned against God himself. Jonah admitted that he was willfully sinning and that his defiance had put even the lives of others in jeopardy. And in that moment, the true confession of Jonah, he named it. He called it for what it was. Step two is take corrective action. Take responsibility and lean into repentance. Jonah says, throw me into the sea. Now, that sounds pretty drastic action, doesn't it? This is a follower of God, acknowledging his faith in God and proclaiming that God is justified in whatever he does. Even though it may not seem fair or might seem extreme. How many of you in the room, you don't have to raise your hand, but it'd be nice if you did. How many of you have ever prayed, Lord, either take this sin from my life or take me out. Either get rid of this sin in me or take me home because I am done. Anyone ever pray that sin? Amen, amen. I have prayed that sin myself. I know that, that agony, that's that repentance. I don't want to do this anymore, so either take it out of me or take me home because something's got to change. Amen? I want you to understand that this isn't depression. This isn't hopelessness. See, Jonah came to the point of repentance of saying, uh, turning his will or turning our will from sin and surrendering to God. Repentance basically means a deliberate change of mind. Repentance is a first step to renewing your mind with the Spirit of Christ. It took a raging storm and a potential of death of every man on that ship for Jonah to truly confess and repent of his sin. In verse 14, the sailors cry out, Don't hold us responsible for his death. Lord, what you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. You see, if this was just about Jonah getting back on dry ground and going over to Nineveh, God could have just let the sailors row that ship right back to shore. Jonah could have got out and went to Nineveh. This was about God calling Jonah out for his sin and bringing him to the point where he would come face to face with that sinfulness. 
And he would see his disobedience for what it truly was. Listen, the message of Jonah is that the man who is fleeing from God had to first repent of his own sin before he could go and call others to repentance. Amen? He had to be a follower before he could call others to follow. I had a guy call me one time, and uh, I was a pastor, and he called, and he asked if I could come and talk to him. He needed help with an alcohol problem. And so I went and to his house, and uh, we're sitting in the living room, and we're talking, and he talked, and he confessed, and he cried, and, you know, and, and as we talked, and he wanted to get help, and, and as we were talking, he would get up every once in a while and walk into the kitchen, and, which was just around the corner, and he was talking and we were going through all these potential things that he could do and he'd come back in a room and he'd be crying and we'd talk some more. And finally he got up and he walked in the kitchen and I, I just kind of stood up and leaned over and he was out in the kitchen taking a hit off of his bottle. And I thought, something's wrong here, right? This isn't really confession. He just wanted to talk about his problem. He didn't want to solve his problem. He just wanted to talk about it. And so, eventually, I just, I told him. I said, I'll come back when you're ready to surrender. You can't have a rational conversation with irrational people. And in that moment, he was irrational. He wasn't looking for help. And I left. And I waited for him to call me. You see, no matter how honestly you confess your sin and no matter how firmly you decide against your sin, your willpower is not enough for you to overcome the sin that's in your life. You can start playing, Sam, if you like. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say, Pastor, I prayed. I've cried. I've sworn I would never do it again. And yet, here I am. I've done that myself. You see, of ourselves, we are truly, utterly bankrupt of the moral energy to win the victory. We just don't have it. You'll never do it on your own, not not when it comes to overcoming sin. You need an outside source of power. That'd be a good spot for an amen. You need an outside source of power. I'm going to try that one more time. You need an outside source of power. Thank you very much. You need a steady flow of power that is not of human origin. Amen. You need a miraculous act of holiness in your life. Amen. See, you can't do it under your own power. You need the power that only comes from the Holy One Himself. Nothing else will do. You have to tap into God's power through Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And only then can we truly defeat the sin that is within us. Amen? We're going to pick up here next week. Let me pray. Father, you are an amazing God. And Lord, I suspect that nearly everyone in this room at one time or another has been at the end of themselves. 
and they've dealt with sin because, Lord, we all deal with sin. No one is perfect, not even one. And, Lord, we've all dealt with that sin in our lives. And, Lord, we've all cried out to you, take this from me, Lord. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be the sinner I am. Lord, help us come to the end of ourselves where we say, not in my power, Lord, but in your power. Not in my strength, but in your strength. And Lord, as we go home this week, let us, let us ponder salvation through you. Your forgiveness is amazing, Lord. And let us not take that for granted. Your power is awesome, Lord. And let us look to that power. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the New Stanton Church Podcast. We'd love to connect with you. So visit our website at newstantonchurch.com, follow the Get Involved tab, and RSVP to our next meet and greet.